<laughs> so, let's see. Back to the stuff that's not on a map, but in your Bible. We are back to the really exciting and uplifting portion of the Bible, which is the book of Job. <laughs> yeah, hey, Job, Job is positive and encouraging. <laughs> Sorry. And, and, and just because I'm evil, I'll tell you, every, how, who else's brain went, K-Love? <laughs> Sorry. All right. Let's recap because we were in Acts last week for Pentecost. So chapter one, Job, wealthy man, godly man. That summarizes Job. We're going to leave him right there. Um, Satan hates God, hates Job. That, and pretty much everybody else, now that I think about it. Could have just summarized that with hates everyone and everything. I think that would be a good summary of Satan. Sound good? All right, we'll leave him there. All right, God was involved. He's the one who allowed for Job's loss. And also remember, and remember this for the rest of the book, Job, not Job, God is the one who picked the fight. God picked the fight. And God is the one who has allowed what has happened so far. Now, what did Job lose in chapter 1? Well, let's see. He lost his wealth, and he lost his entire family, except for his wife, which we may find out in a little while that may not be a good thing, but (laughs) we'll get there. But he still has his health, right? For a while. (laughs) We're going to get there. Now, what is going on here? Why is everything being taken? Why is God picking a fight with Satan? Why is Job feeling like he's in there seemingly in the middle of this? The answer is because God is at work. He is teaching, he is strengthening, and he is proving a point. Now let's ask this very important question. To whom? See, See, why is it in the book? Always remember this is the lesson about Exodus. Why was God doing what he was doing with the Israelites in the Exodus? For the Israelites and for all the rest of his people down through the ages. Why is he doing what he's doing with Job? For Job and for all of the other members of his people down through the ages. I made a mistake yesterday. We were singing and goofing off and I went way too long and talked and sang way too much. So... Yeah, we might be on borrowed time this morning with how much voice I have. Normally, Saturday is a recoup of my voice day. Yesterday, it was a, let's see how bad we can make it day. So the really good news is if you're in the office tomorrow, y'all won't be able to talk at all. So you're welcome. (laughs) So, all right, let's begin verse 1, chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. All right, first thing we got to pay attention to, any time frame given here. Since the events of chapter 1, there was a day. You know when that was, right? It was that time in that place with that people. You know, that's, that's when this is. Why is there not a specific date given? Because this is part of the lesson of your life, Christian. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. Who gets to set that schedule? God does. Do you get to look at the, the planner? No. So what should you do? You should do what Galatians 6.9 tells you to do. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. And this is one of those simple little lessons from the very beginning of Job here. And it is a lesson that is necessary in life both then and now, which is one of the reasons why it's in the book. Life is long and life is short depending on what's going on around you. 
the trick to godly living is living well under heaven when life seems like it's taking forever and when life seems like it's flying by. Typically, it's a lot easier to do when life seems like it's flying by because you're just kind of living life and things are moving and things are going well. And then it slows down when bad things happen, when troubles and trials come. And the temptation that we have is to then get into our power and to then get into what have we done and what do we need to do to get out of this. No, it is then that we have to remember that it is God who was the author from the beginning to the end. And that if he has brought us this trial, he will strengthen us to bring us through this trial. That is a lesson that is easy to forget, but it is a lesson that is also easy to see, especially as we go through this book. I've already mentioned that Job is not going to do well a lot of the time. When Job gets to the end, though, he will get there not because of his goodness, but because of God's. When he gets there, it won't be because of his perseverance, but it will be because of God's. It will be in spite of what other, air quotes, godly people have told him, and it will be entirely based upon the work of God. This is why you don't get the time frame, and why I'm forever telling you, when should you be faithful? Now. Now. When can I worry about? Now, the temptation and the drag of sin is you worry about 5, 10, 15 hike 20 years ago, or you worry about five years from now. I can't do anything about either one of those. I can do something about now. Live and deal with what is going on now. So, notice the other part. Sons of God come to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Satan is still in tow and also under it. Never forget that. Romans 13 applies to even Satan. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. There are no accidents in the kingdom. There is nothing that God has forgotten to manage this week. There is nothing that, you know, Satan has done an end around and figured out a way to get outside the purview of God. Who rules and reigns? God does. That was true then, it is true now, and it will be true into eternity. So, let's keep moving. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Anybody else feel like we've got deja vu all over again? Like, didn't we just have this conversation in chapter 1? Yes. Yes, we did. Why? Exodus chapter 4. You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn, so I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. All right, don't know a lot of things. Chapter 4 comes before chapter 12, right? Way before chapter 12. Chapter 12 is the exodus of Israel in the book of Exodus. Yet before Moses makes his way back down to Egypt. God has already told him how the story will end. Why go through the hail and the water to blood and the flies and the locusts and the darkness and the cattle and the boils and the frog? And I mean, what are we doing here? 
let's just get to work and take care of this and figure this all out. For whom does God work? Specifically, for whom does God always work? There's someone higher than that. For himself. This is why we always tell you God works for our good and for his glory. God will be glorified by demonstrating his power over the Egyptians. Why? Well, because the Egyptians are an idolatrous pagan nation who have this entire pantheon. We did this. Um, I encourage you to go back to look up the sermons on Exodus. We didn't spend a ton of time on it, but when we went through all the plagues, we demonstrated how God is not just attacking nature, but the power behind nature that Egypt has assigned a deity towards. It is a destruction of their pantheon, a removal of all of their trust and all of their hope beyond which there is none. So as they have trusted in Isis and they have trusted in this God and that God and whatever they came up with, God goes, nope, I got power over that one. Nope, I got power over that one. Nope, he can't save you. Nope, they can't save you. Nope, can't do a thing about it. Systematically tearing down their society and their belief structure. Now, Christian, will God do that to you? If you're engaged in idolatry, the answer is yes. How do you know? You must check your heart. So in other words, did Job do well with the loss of his wealth and the loss of his family? Yeah. Job, remember, I, I danced. Blessed be the name of the... I, I will spare you and not dance again. Becca was too offended. Although she can't see me, so no, I still won't do it. I still won't do it. He did very well. Why are we still picking the fight? Well, because there's more things to root out. There's more glory to be shown. There's more power to be demonstrated. There's more faith to be wrung out. Always remember, when is your faith proven? In good times or in trial? In trial. So again, that would mean that if God loves his people, he will do what for them? He will prove their faith. He will root out their sin, and he will strengthen them until the day of completion. Welcome to the life of Job. So, Satan has a lovely response here. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now. Touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Now, I have questions. And they stem from the previous book that we went through. Anybody remember what the previous book was? <laughs> James. James chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Does it look to you like God is tempting Job here a little bit? Just let me be honest. Does it look to you like God is tempting Job and, and, and stressing him and maybe, maybe putting him in a position to fail? Does it look a little bit like that? It does. I mean, if you're being honest with yourself and, you, and you're being a little bit cynical, which cynicism is like my natural habitat. I start there and then work to optimism. But if you're like me, you read this and go, you know, this looks an awful lot like I am being tempted by God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. In other words, will God give you more than you yourself, by yourself, can handle? 
Yes, God will give you more than you yourself by yourself can handle. Will God ever give you more than he can handle? No, because that's a logically insane question to begin with. This is where we get ourselves twisted up and messed up. As we look at this and go, well, man, how could anybody do this? They can't. That's kind of the point. As Jesus would tell the disciples about salvation, with man this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So let's go back to James. What did James say in the next verse? Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So if God puts forth his hand and strikes Job's health, and Job is willing to curse God to his face, is that because God has done wrong or because Job's heart is a little more broken than he wanted to admit? Yeah. Now, if you are a godly person, you are seeking after righteousness and hoping to one day dwell in the kingdom, when do you want to find that out? Now. I want to find that out now. I want to know that I know, and I want to be tested, and I want to be tried. This is the attitude that we lose. We keep thinking, God, keep me from every trial and temptation. Keep me from ever having to stretch and work and test myself. Keep me from ever having to rely on you. (laughs) What could possibly go wrong with this mindset and attitude? Other than everything. I mean, other than everything. Now, I didn't tell you to go pray for trial and temptation. Although, if you did, I'm not going to argue with you. But recognize that, let's put it this way. If you have children, or you have grandchildren, or nieces and nephews, or any little person that you care about, my little person, I mean children, not, you know, like little persons, but anyway. <laughs> Don't ask me, I have no idea. <laughs> do I understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? No. If you have anyone like that that you care about, do you go out of your way to make sure that they never have to do anything difficult? No. So when they come to you, like when kids come to you and be like, I can't open this, do you go, well, I know you can't open that, let me have that. What do you say most of the time? Give it a try. Let's see. Okay, that's a good try. All right, let me help you out with that. And then we open it. Why? Because you want them to do what? You want to... Now, we both know that what's going to happen when they try, that they're not going to get there. But is there benefit to this? Yes, because you grow in trial. You grow in difficulty. This is, again, I told you my favorite question to ask my kids is, what did you think was going to happen? Because I want them to get into the habit of recognizing what? That my actions have consequences. And part of living in this world is realizing that I might want to consider them before I do things. Now, does that mean I always shield them from their consequences? No. If I ask them and they haven't answered, are they shielded from the negative consequences that I myself might deliver? No. But they do need to learn to evaluate and think these through. This occurs in difficulty, struggle, and trial. If God loves you as his child, he will strengthen you. He will test you. He will prune you for your good and for his glory. How? Well, it's simple. Do you ever praise God more than when you've come through a difficult circumstance? <laughs> and how many times have you told yourself, man, I'm never going to turn away from this. I'm, I'm going to stay right here. How's that work out for you? <laughs> now you know why I tell you don't be guided by how you 
feel. Because in those moments, you know what you're, you know what you're doing? I'm, we made it. We did. This is good. God is good. Yay, yay, yay. I can't live like that because eventually I have to just like go to the grocery store. You know, I have to brush my teeth and I don't always think about it. I'm brushing my teeth. Oh, God is good all the time. <laughs> because that emotionalism can't sustain you. But the knowledge and wisdom of who he is and what he has accomplished can be guided by what you know. And what you know is that in difficulty, he will see you through. And when you have come through difficulty, he has seen you through, which means while it may be calm and simple now, does that mean he's not working? No. Does that mean he will forget you and has to ramp up his efforts when the next trouble comes? No. He is good then, he is good now, and he will be good when I need him to be because he is always. So, let's move on. Verse 7. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sore sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And Job took a pot shard to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. All right, first off, go smiting. I told you guys a couple weeks ago, we need more smiting in the world, right? Told you, so I, I see that and I go, all right, we smote somebody. Good job. Second, though, from where does Satan get this power? See, I want to make sure we hammer this into our heads. There is way too much in modern Christianity that ascribes way too much power and authority to Satan. I mean, way too much. Yes, he's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Yes, he's doing all of that. But always remember that that prowling lion's on a leash, and who holds the other end of it? God does. Satan doesn't have this power and authority. See, we, we see this too often, like you watch a bad movie, or you, might, you watch a good movie, but there's the good guy, right? And then there's the bad guy. And which one's stronger? The bad guy. The bad guy's always stronger, and, and somehow the good guy overcomes at the end. I basically just described to you the last 40 years of professional wrestling. You're welcome. <laughs> it's the same story. It's the same story. Don't act like you've never watched it. We buy into that, though, and think that's how the world operates, that there's good and there's evil and there, there's a push and there's a pull and sometimes one is up and sometimes the other one's up and it, at the end of the day, our hope is that what? That good will triumph. No. God rules. God reigns. He is the sovereign over his creation. Satan serves at God's behest. Always. That's why I told you one of my favorite things in, in scripture is revelation 19 it's the great fight at the end of time right all the forces of evil are assembled and jesus and his forces are assembled and what happens and jesus shows up and goes okay you lose you're dead <laughs> it's like i can't even accomplish that when i turn all the cheat codes onto the video game and it's jesus like all right you're done we're done here because who stands up against god no one it's over there's no accomplishment here so I want to make sure we hammer this into, into our heads that Satan isn't just set loose by God, but in this instance, he has actually been empowered by him. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me, I am the Lord, and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. There's not another power or authority anywhere. Now, 
to smite Job. I'm going to keep using that. I'm just sorry. I'm just not getting rid of that. To <laughs> Somebody's excited at least. I'll take it. To smite Job with boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. One, ow. Two, what would be the reaction and thought process of everyone around him? How would they understand this? This, this would be judgment. This would be judgment from God. I mean, God must be really mad at you because why else would he do that? <laughs> this would be awful. Now, important, important question. You ready? Is this judgment from God? No. No, it is not. Now, more important question. If you're Job, how do you know that? Because if you're Job, do you have chapters 1 and 2? The answer is no, you do not. You don't walk around with, you know, like your iPhone doesn't connect to the, to the heavenly TV station so that you can, you know, watch as the throne room turns. You, you don't get that station. You don't have that one. So does Job know this is not judgment? See, and that's where our brokenness is shown because our first thought is absolutely not. How else would Job know? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job should know because Job knows what about himself? Who he is and where his heart lies. Christian, evaluate yourself. Know where you stand and know why you stand. Because when we look at the outside world, the temptation is to say, once again, oh man, this has got to be awful. God must be really torqued at you. I don't know what you did, but you might want to figure this out. And by the way, you're going to hear a version of that argument several more times in this book. And it's going to lead to different discussions every single time. Which is one of the reasons why we can kind of go through this and keep up with it. But that's the temptation. Is that the case? And the answer is no. The Sunday school, this morning, we got a good example of this. Israel is being taken off into exile by the Babylonians. Literally in chains, off into slavery for most of them. Was God judging Judah by taking Israel out of the land, tearing down the temple, and punishing their sin? And the answer is, yes. Was God punishing some of the Judeans by sending them into exile? Yes. Was God judging all of the Judeans by sending them into exile? And the answer is, no. There was a faithful remnant amongst those going off into slavery. So my marching off in chains to Babylon, not in judgment, looks an awful lot like your marching off in chains to Babylon in judgment. So where does the difference really lie? And the difference really lies in the heart of the person. Where do you stand and why do you stand? This is why you must evaluate your heart, mind, and actions and start at the beginning. Who do you trust in? For whom do you live? What is your hope and what do you expect out of this life? Because the difficulty in the lie of the world is that you're, you're supposed to expect something amazing and wonderful and, and everything will be good. Why? Because I'm on the side of God. And I, but if he loves you, would he let that idolatry stand? No. I mean, like, do you, would you, you found out your kid was running around at school, like cursing at people and kicking them in the back of the head. Well, you know, boys will be boys. Or is it, come here? <laughs> you say, well, that's me. It's like, no, no. I've actually had this discussion, not about school, but I've grabbed both of my kids at numerous times. You will not talk to your mother like that. No. You will not talk to your friends like that. You will not talk to me like that. Are we understanding each other? Okay, good. Why? Because I love them. 
and I will not allow that iniquity to foster itself and to flourish in their lives. It's not because other people are going to look, I cannot believe you are raising kids like that. Oh, you have no idea how bad these kids are. <laughs> Trust me, I live with them. They're awful. No. <laughs> Sorry, your mileage may vary. It's not so that the neighbors will think I'm doing a good job. It's because, no, I love you too much to let you live and act like that. I will not allow that to stand in you. Does God love you less? Would you expect less than your creator and savior? I would hope not. So here we go. The loving wife enters the scene in verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Thanks, honey. Love you. (laughs) Maybe Job had a really good insurance policy and she was hoping to cash in. Mutual of Midian was, you know, was his insurance agent or something. Hey, geography jokes. There you go. It is better to live in a corner of the roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. It's Proverbs 25. And it's true. It's absolutely true. You want to destroy a household faster than anything? Make mom and and wife a miserable human being. Make her bitter and jealous and angry about everything. And you know what everything else in the house is going to be like? The exact same way. As opposed to Proverbs 18. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. I think Job is thinking about that one right now. (laughs) What's the point? This is what trial looks like. Would it be awesome if Job's wife was a godly woman who pointed him in the right direction? Yes. Yes, it would. Where is Job's hope going to be found? In God. What would happen if it was found anywhere else? Would Job be in a good place? No, not in the least. When God tries him, when God tests him, God is taking away from him everything. What's left? God is left. They can't take that. They can't change that. They can't shake that. This is the strength we have to lean on, Christian. The world does not love you. Sin does not love you. It lies to you, but it does not love you. Most people don't love you. God does. And by his work, he is cleansing you, he is strengthening you, and he will bring you to a final day of completion, and he will hold you up at the end as his. And there is no power, no authority, or anything else that can change the work that God is doing. Guard your heart. Check where you are and why you are there. Because if that's not where you stand, if, if that would break you, then your hope is in something other than God. And it is placed in something that will not stand. This is one of the lessons that I'm forever reminding myself and Cameron and I. So let's see, should we pick on Cameron and see if she gets one right? You guys ready? <clears throat> what does every idol do? Every idol breaks the heart of its worshipers every single time. It can't do anything else. It is incapable of redeeming. It is incapable of strengthening. It is incapable of lifting you up. Idolatry can only break you over and over and over again. So if your hope is in your job, if your hope is in your spouse, if your hope is in your children, if your hope is in anything in this world, you are doomed. 
If your hope is in God, it cannot be shaken. It cannot be taken, and it will see you through. That's the point of the rest of this book. Um, a, good, a good corollary to this would be, um, one of the famous things about the book of Esther is it doesn't mention the name of God. God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, but the work of God is all throughout the book of Esther. Job is similar. While God's name is mentioned, it's very rarely mentioned in a good light by any of the people. But at the same time, his good work and his accomplishment is all over this book. As we get into the meat of this, because it's going to be rapid fire. We're, going to, we're coming up very quickly. On, we're going to be doing chapters at a time. This is the thing that we have to keep in our head because this is also the thing you have to keep in your head in your day-to-day life is that God's work is active. He is accomplishing on behalf of his people. He is carrying them through to the day of completion and he will not drop any that are his. And while it may not feel like that, in the book of Job, it is what you are seeing played out in real time. So, Job has to respond to this. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job slept on the couch the rest of his marriage. No. (laughs) In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. That's a good answer. You're supposed to love that woman, right? You're supposed to honor and cherish and all that stuff, right? When she tells you to do something foolish and idolatrous, what do you say? No, that's foolish and idolatrous. I don't care how cute you are. The answer is no. And it should be no every single time. This is what he said in the previous chapter. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We'll borrow from James again. Where does he start his book? Consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Which, by the way, is always, remember, a fulfillment of what Jesus promised for his people. And and by the way, aside real quick, just make sure we're not twisted up when, when I invoke this again. Is Jesus unaware of what's going on here? (laughs) See, because your first thought is, well, no, we're not in the New Testament yet. So you're right. When Satan comes to present himself before God, is Jesus over there having a coffee break? Like, oh, no. What testament are we in? We're in Job. Okay, call me when it's my turn. Hang on. (laughs) This is why these understandings matter, why knowing your Trinitarian theology matters, is the same Holy Spirit that's at work at Pentecost is the same Holy Spirit that's persevering in Job. The same God that is redeeming his people and accomplishing the works of the crucifixion is the same God who is accomplishing the works in Job's life. The same Christ who is redeeming a people at Revelation is the same Christ who is redeeming a people in the book of Job. It is the same work of God always. So when we say what Jesus says later, realize that Jesus has been doing that all along. So Luke 12, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. Why? Why will he do that? Because that's what he does. The Holy Spirit testifies to Christ. This is also, by the way, why we don't elevate the uh, miraculous works of the New Testament to a godlike status. Do you know what the purpose of all of those works were? 
So when Peter and John can heal the guy who's never walked in, Paul can tell the kid who fell out the window that he's not allowed to be dead anymore and we can heal disease and all. Why was that done? Because the Holy Spirit was testifying to the testimony of the apostles. It was proving the apostolic testimony. What was the point of the apostolic testimony? To talk about who? Specifically, to talk about Jesus. The Holy Spirit's entire job is to testify to the work of the Son. The Son's entire job is to do what? To redeem a people to present to his Father. The Father's job is then going to be what? To return those people to the Son that have been carried along by the Spirit so that God may be glorified in all. It's almost like the Trinitarian work is working together, working in and amongst itself to accomplish the purposes that he has laid out. Yes, that's very confusing pronoun-wise, and that's why I'm going to stop right there, because I'm going to start confusing myself in a second. (laughs) So when Jesus is telling you what the Holy Spirit is going to do, that's because that's the work that the Holy Spirit has always done. Why do you think there was a remnant? How could Elijah be told that there's 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal? Well, what made them so good? Nothing other than God. Why is David's prayer, do not take your Holy Spirit from me? Because David recognizes I'm here and I'm connected to you and I am redeemed in you because of you, the work that you have done, how you have cleansed me and how you are carrying me along. David would get that because what did Saul's life look like? When God was with Saul, Saul did what? Quite well. When God was not with Saul and Saul was there for judgment, Saul did not so well. This has been true of all of his people all of the time. So, let's finish up here. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came, each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, shortest man in the whole Bible, and Zophar the Namathite. Oh, nobody got that one? Okay. (laughs) Come on now. Somebody, <laughs> the best part of a bad joke is realizing when people get it. Because <laughs> And so far the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. <laughs> bad jokes aside, this is actually really good. Church, isn't this what it should look like? Isn't this Galatians 6? If anyone is caught in any trespass... You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, fun little notes on this. um, Which may mess you up. It may not. Doesn't mess me up. So we'll cover that. Temanite possibly from the name given to Esau's firstborn in Genesis 36, 15. Uh, Shuhite is possibly from Shua, who was one of the sons of Abraham. And the Namathite is a Gentile name for Arabia, which is south and east of Midian. So that would be near the land of Uz. Now, if you were putting a gun to my head and telling me, is that where these names came from? I would say... Yeah, that is probably where these names came from, and they're also more than likely anachronistic. Now, 
This is one of those historical terms that needs a definition. An anachronism is taking a current thing and applying it to an old thing. So if you went to a medieval church, say you, you went to a lovely cathedral in the 1300s, they would have stained glass windows and they would have oil paintings and they would have fresco paintings depicting the events of scripture because the vast majority of the peasant population in that time in Europe was illiterate. And you can only say so much before people, you know, zone out and lose everything. So they did a lot of teaching visually with paintings and windows and the like. You would see things like David going out to battle against Goliath in, a, in an oil painting. And David would have a helmet and a suit of armor and a shield and a sword at his waist. Why? Because that's how a king dresses and what is David? He's the king of Israel. Now in 1300s, you know, England or France, exactly. That's what kings wore. That's what they looked like. So when David rides triumphantly back into Jerusalem, you know, with the Ark of the Covenant behind him, he's on a horse and he's got a shield and there's, you know, banners and because what would kings have looked like in that day? Now, is that what David looked like? No, that's an anachronism. That's taking what the world looks like now and assuming that's what the world looked like back then. I think that's where the names come from because that's where these people live now, when this is being written down, we don't know what they were called then, because if you ask me, I think this, the events here predate even Abraham, but <clears throat> to explain the geography, you would use the terminology you would be familiar with and you would be comfortable with. Because again, if you made me pick one, remember the two best uh, ideas for authorship are Moses and Solomon. Like, I'm a coin flip, but if you made me lean, I would probably lean towards Moses. And then, like, on Tuesday, I'll lean towards Solomon. That's where I'm at on it. So, anachronistically, these names would make sense. That doesn't mean a whole lot, but it just helps you out to make sure that we cover all this stuff. So, when they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept, and each one of them tore his robe and threw dust over their heads towards the sky. This is also good. It's a symbol of grief and mourning. Why are they mourning? Because this is their friend. And he's so messed up right now that when they look at him, it doesn't look like him anymore. And that grieves them. This is, again, fulfillment of the commandment that Christ gave. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciple, that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. This is also a good lesson for ministry and grief. Do you know how often I have something brilliant or wise or comforting to say during difficult times? Very, very rarely. I'm not good in those spots. I'm not good with people a lot of times in general. But you know what sometimes the best thing you can do is? Just show up. Just show up and sit. Just be around. This stinks and I'm sorry. Because it's comforting. Because somebody cares. And you cared enough to call. And you cared enough to show up. It's not that you're going to have some great wise thing. It's just that you're going to care. Because let's be honest, doesn't that help a little bit? I've done many a southern funeral 
And there is, for some odd reason, a, a southern tradition that when someone dies, you must bring them fried chicken. You think I'm kidding. If, if you die in the south, fried chicken is coming in buckets. I, I, don't, I don't mean like because they went to KFC, although some people will. But I mean there will be package upon package of food. I, I've spent two funerals for Cameron's grandparents where my only job in the family was to sit in the kitchen and when someone brought food to write in the book who they were, what they brought, and then make sure it got into a container so I could give them their dish back so that we didn't lose it. And I did that for days. And it was a full-time job. Because people are just randomly showing up with food. And after a while, it's like, please stop bringing chicken. And every single time someone comes in the kitchen, you know what you are? You're happy. You just get a little bit of a joy, even though you don't want to eat another bite of chicken. You don't want to smell another chicken. You're, you, can, you are yourself convinced that any minute you will cluck and grow feathers. And someone shows up with chicken and you go, I am genuinely happy and glad that you have brought this. Why? Because they cared. And it's just nice to know that somebody cared. Was it the most useful thing on the planet? No. Now, one good humor thing, just because I will share. I have watched grown men. I was one of them. <laughs> My father-in-law and brother-in-law were another. A, a lady on like the third day of this brought a tater tot casserole that had beef. And we literally cried over it as we ate it because you know why? It wasn't chicken. It's not chicken. <laughs> We literally just got spoons and like carved off sections and the three of us sat there in the kitchen. It's not chicken. <laughs> but people cared. They loved that person. They care about the family and they want you to know that they cared and that's something. It's also wisdom to think and to be present, and to listen, and to hear. I mean, he who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. A time to tear apart, a time to sew together, a time to be silent, and a time to speak. It's Proverbs 17 and Ecclesiastes 3. Sometimes the only thing you can do is, I'm here, and I brought chicken. <laughs> and I don't know what else to do, but I did that because it just seemed like it was the right thing to do. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't feel like you got to solve the world's problems. Sometimes you just have to be around for the people that you care about so that they know that you care. So now what? Because that's the end of this chapter. Up until now, how has Job done? I mean, if you were giving Job a letter grade, this is, this is A+. Plus. Like, I'm not letting my wife distract me. I'm not letting my pain distract me. I am into this. We're good. Who will be saved? Matthew chapter 24, the one who endures to the end will be saved. What happens when you don't do well anymore? Where is your hope? Where is your trust? Where is your salvation? It's in God. When you did well, was God at work? Yeah. When you did terrible, is God still at work? Yeah. Always remember this. Hebrews 12, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children, and you are not sons. We had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. 
All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In other words, your patience bringing endurance and your endurance proving your faith. It's the same understanding. We're going to get to live that in real time, basically, with Job. Because if left to his own devices, as awesome as Job has done, when Job's worry is about Job, how's he going to do? He's going to fail miserably. When Job's trust is in himself and in his wisdom and in his works, where is his hope? It is nowhere because it is useless. But has God forgotten him? No. Christian, remember this. Remember this for the wandering family member. Remember this for the person that you're trying to disciple. Remember this for the person you're trying to win. It is God who changes hearts and minds and God who sees us through. Proclaim faithfully and trust in the work that he is doing. Because sometimes it's ugly. And it's ugly not because God is failing, but because (laughs) typically we are. And Job's entire fight through this is ugly. But it is glorious because it is what happens when human beings try to war and God goes, nope, come on. (laughs) This is the dragging portion of the program. Let's go. We're going to get there. And we can rejoice because it's for discipline. If God is disciplining and God is working on you, it's because why? He loves you and he cares for you and he is strengthening you and bringing you through, which means you should rest where? On all that he is and all that he has done, because that is what he is still doing. Let's pray.